0: Rockheads, put down the ice axe, stop polishing your crampons, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Macielik, here to show number 99 with guest Stephen Forte, recorded live Friday, February 4th, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on VB.NET, ASP.NET and C# sharp classes online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of reports.net simple, powerful and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who wouldn't be caught dead in an LL bean unless they were serving sausage, Carl Franklin.
1: Thank you. I want to introduce Rory in Portland, Rory Blythe, my co-host, as always. Rory, how are you doing tonight? Fine, thanks. Great. And uh, this is the first post. A and E Caesar's twenty four seven show that we've actually done, right? Fine. So yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, you know that was us. Yes, you did see us on A and E Caesar's twenty four seven. Sorry, we can't put up a clip uh, unless we go to prison. But uh, there it is. If you were watching, uh, I think Rory, you have a schedule of times that it's going to be re airing, right? On your, blog. I think it was going
2: to. W- what is today? February
1: what? February fourth today. Okay,
2: yeah, I think it aired yesterday, and I think it's airing tomorrow as well. So, uh, on the fifth as well. So, if you missed it, um, and if you're listening to the show uh, recorded on Monday, then you actually missed it two more times right. in addition to the original. So,
1: so I'm looking at uh, your blog, and by the way, your blog, man, I haven't, I hadn't been there in a while. So, I went over to see, you know, what you had posted about us being on TV and all. I visit your blog every day, but go I know, ahead. And, and and I saw this. I I read this uh, story. This is an essay that you and Adika wrote. Your girlfriend and uh, called Star Trek: The Experience at the Hilton in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I was I was actually in bed reading this to my wife on a tablet PC. I'm my is that PC. how you get her in the mood? Yeah, that's how. I... Exactly, you know. But it, and and we were just laughing hysterically, man. This is <laughs> that's just, awesome. Just really yeah. funny stuff.
2: That's actually just the first post in a in a whole series, and the best stuff is yet to come. So.
1: And the Shrinkster URL is shrinkster.com slash 3NG. So if you go to shrinkster.com 3NG, that'll bring you to Rory's blog post about Star Trek The Experience, which, man, I was just rolling on the floor. That was just hilarious, man. You could, pub, you could take some of your best posts and publish a book, and it'd be right up there with you know Mark Twain and uh, Madonna. <laughs> I don't know
2: about that. But yeah. um, I had actually, or I have been considering doing um, exactly that. I went through and I culled about maybe 30, 40 of uh, what I thought were probably the best posts that would be worthy of publication. And uh, I'm trying to figure out what to do with them right now. And I'm either thinking about releasing them as a book somehow, somewhere, or about beginning to submit them to magazines. But one of my goals uh, that I announced on my blog this year was to get published um, in two places this year that have nothing to do with tech. So So if
1: you have any uh, publisher contacts outside of the developer world, listeners out there, uh, you know, give the man a break. He needs it. He, the world. And needs I don't to mind you
2: know doing favors um, to to win <laughs> you know uh, better things. If you know what I mean by favors, <laughs> uh, there's quotes around it, and it, it means a whole lot of stuff. And yeah, that's all I'm gonna say about that.
1: But, so the thing about A and E is that uh, we were in Vegas at Dev Connections, and I know we got to start the show soon. Uh, hang on, Stephen. But anyway, we were in Vegas at Dev Connections. We went to Caesar's Palace. It was uh, Nick Landry. Nick, active Nick Landry is what he calls himself and Rory and myself and Jeff and Mark Miller was there and Pat Hines was also lurking in the shadows. And um, and Nick tried to pick up this woman in a bar, in the bar there at Caesars, and they filmed the whole thing. And, uh, you know, um, he basically got smacked down. Yeah, she, she basically, and he, you know, to, to her credit, he was kind of a dork. You know, the funniest part was when Rory stepped in, you know, he sensed that it was going poorly for Nick and Rory just couldn't take it anymore. So he stepped in and, uh, and tried to, to get her to do something or say something or at least acknowledge that, you know, whatever. And, uh, that was pretty much the most hilarious part of the whole video I thought. And I was just there providing, I don't know what I was doing, just, you know. Commentary. I wasn't really all that funny, man. You were. You were the star of that show.
2: Well, I was just trying to get laid, but then she <laughs> called me gay, and that made it kind of difficult. So, you
1: were not. <laughs> okay, I wasn't. You just want to throw a pie in her face.
2: I did, kind of, actually. Still,
1: so yeah. All right. Well, uh, before we get started, we had a couple of pieces of mail, just real quick. Uh, this one's for you, Rory. This one's from uh, Ralph Loizo. He says, "Rory, I believe that you would have great success in writing text adventure games. I still reminisce about the old Infocom games. I've always wondered though how uh it would how it would be to incorporate speech recognition into those sort of games instead of retyping common commands like go north, get lamp or kill the green dwarf with an audio recording of Jay Franklin's java show, you can just say them." Uh, just in case you're planning on making a web or Windows version in addition to your CE versions, just an idea. Keep rocking.net rocks, Ralph, Luizzo. Uh And that was kind of cool. That was a reference to we were talking about those Infocom games on a show previous. Yeah, and I've, I, I've gotten
2: a few emails about, about the whole game idea. Um, and a lot of people are mentioning the Infocom games. And I actually wrote one using um, Inform, which is this language and compiler that is really bizarre. And, it, and it's designed to compile uh, your source down to um, the bytecode that's recognizable by a Z engine, which is the virtual machine that was invented to run Infocom games. So I have written an Infocom style game and, uh, and I've wow. kind of been there and that's not what I'm going to be working on for um, the phone. The phone is going to be a rather different kind of thing. And I'm, I'm in the process now of charting out all the logic. Um, and it's a very, very different process than, than putting together a desktop application there are a lot of different things to consider, and you have this whole world where you have to keep track of a lot of elements, and you have little things affecting other little things. It's 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 complicated, yeah. but it's also kind of gratifying. Was the uh,
1: was the game actually you know Rory style or funny kind of? Oh, game? Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, It really? Was Rory style.
2: Oh, do you yeah. have a copy um, of
1: it? You could let us have. Play I, I
2: do actually have a copy of it. It's it's unfinished. I had the whole outline <laughs> written, and I wrote about the first twenty five percent of it. Wow. Um, and I doubt most people would even get that far, but uh, yeah, it, it was fun. I sat <laughs> down one night. Uh, Back before I was working, when I was just out of college, and uh, I just went through and
1: oh, that ought to be awesome.
2: Yeah, got this sucker out. We'll put up a link to it. it There's a there's a chihuahua in a clown suit. I mean, it's pretty typical. (laughs) Rory, there's a hot air balloon. I
1: mean, there's a lot of crap. So that's great. Uh, We'll put up a link. Um, This is the second one here from Ian Dixon. Dear Carl and Rory, I'm a massive fan of .NET Rocks. It's so good to listen to informative and entertaining shows like this. There's nothing else around like your show. I wondered if you could get on uh, or talk about two massive managed applications from Microsoft that you haven't talked about before, Microsoft CRM and Windows Media Center. I'm in the process of rolling out CRM, and I think it's a fantastic showcase for .NET technology. The web app is all ASP.NET and it highlights how .NET can be used on enterprise systems. The other .NET program, Windows Media Center, is also an excellent product. The UI is one of the slickest apps I've ever seen. It's changed how we watch TV, and even my wife can use it. It has a good SDK, too, and I have been able to develop an RSS reader and some other apps that sit inside the Media Center application. Wow, that's pretty cool. My next project is a .NET Rocks Listened from the MCE uh, I don't know. I think he might have wanted to say listener from the MCE interface. I hope Media Center catches on and more people develop add-ins for it. Keep up the good work. Ian Dixon, Manchester, UK. Ian, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't know about you, Rory, but I didn't even know Windows Media Center had an SDK or, or there was any XML or anything like that. So Yeah,
2: I just found out um, during a conversation with Chris Sells. I had no idea before either. So that's, that was news to me. Wow.
1: Well, that's cool. All right. Well, we'll have to ask around uh, Microsoft and see if we can get some people to come in and talk about that. Both of those things sound great. Thanks, Ian. Well, my guest uh, tonight is Stephen Forte. He's the chief technology officer and co-founder of Corazon Incorporated, a Manhattan-based provider of online market research data for Wall Street firms. Stephen is also the Microsoft regional director for the New York metro region He speaks regularly at industry conferences like TechEd, North America Developers Conference, and other conferences around the world. He has written several books on database development and currently is writing the Microsoft Press book SQL Server 2005 Core Developer's Guide. Prior to Corazon, Stephen served as the CTO of Zagat Survey in New York City and was also co-founder and CTO of the New York-based software consulting firm, the Aurora Development Group. He currently is the co-moderator and founder of the New York City net Developer Users Group. Once you welcome Stephen Forte for the second time on .dot net Rocks. Welcome, Stephen.
3: Thanks, Carl. It's great to be back.
1: And for those of who uh, are the listeners who don't know you and what you're all about, you're the reason we had those uh, references to mountain climbing in the uh, in the intro there. Yes, it is. It seems to be a passion of yours, and and you actually uh, did some really incredible things, mountain climbing. I mean, some people climb mountains, but you like. What are some of the mountains you've climbed again?
3: Uh, some of the mountains I've climbed in the last year have been um, Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, the tallest mountain in Africa, and Mount Rainier out in out near Seattle. It's the uh, second tallest mountain in the continental United States and probably the toughest you can do. It's um, a really tough climb. It was actually harder than Mount Kilimanjaro. Did a couple in Alaska last summer right after tech Ed, and um, been out to Everest Base Camp and lots of mountains in the northeast, Mount Washington and Mount Marcy and lots of other mountains that I um, may never heard of in Switzerland and other places, but they've been a lot of fun.
1: And you did mention Mount Everest, right?
3: Yes, I didn't, of course, go to the top of Mount Everest, but I was on an expedition that was going to the top. One of our expedition members is even attempting to ski down from the summit. And, uh, oh, my and God. First woman to do it. Yeah. It was a pretty wild experience because I was on an expedition for three or four weeks, and it really gave me the ability to see what a true expedition that would go to the summit was like. It was led by Wally Berg, who um, has summited seven or eight times, and all the Sherpas were there in 96 with the disaster, so I had firsthand accounts of, you know, the um, 96 disaster, and also the IMAX. A lot of the Sherpas worked on that IMAX film, so it was a really Dude, amazing. What was,
1: what was the 96 disaster?
3: It was what the book Into Thin Air was written about. Okay. It was the disaster where I think about eight or nine people died on the mountain, Scott Fisher, and then wow. all those. It was pretty big news about 10 years ago.
2: Um, I just wanted to say, Stephen. So, um, you're a pretty successful guy, you know. I mean, from the whole intro and everything, you're like CTO of this and CTO of that, and you're like a regional director and entrepreneur and mountain climber and stuff. And and I mean, it just smells and reeks of success. So I was just wondering, um, if uh, if I could have some money.
3: You could have <laughs> money, sure.
2: <laughs> okay, I just, I just, you know, Me when you I have meet people like you. Envelope? And, yeah. um, <laughs> Did everybody get that? Okay, well, cool. I just wanted to make It'd sure. It'd be like so,
3: Bhutanese money or Nepalese money, you know, because <laughs> you didn't specify what kind of money you wanted. <clears throat>
2: Look, I'll, I'll take what I can get, you know. I just so. got back
3: from Egypt. You can have some Egyptian pounds that are left over <laughs> in my wallet. <laughs> oh,
2: man. So you you guys want to talk about some computer stuff?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think we probably should. The last time you were on, you were talking about the Zagat survey online, which you sort of rescued... From a failing project, and I know we talked about that at length offline too. Um, they were suffering from some severe scalability, if I recall.
3: The scalability.
1: And uh, you, uh, you know, fired the Java people, and not, you know, I. Jeez, I shouldn't say that because now Yeah, the, the problem wasn't was was... with
3: Java. The problem was just poorly written application. It, yeah. If they were written in .dot NET, it would have been a horrible application the way they architected it. Right.
1: I, w- I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to imply that. Sorry, Java people. Um, but yeah, you 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 basically kicked out the team that was working on it and re-implemented it all in .NET and uh, save the day. And uh, so this uh, um, stuff that you're currently working on is is uh, SQL 2005. But before we get to that, because I'm really interested in that, um, we we were talking at I believe it was the PDC. No, it was TechEd, and you had done a session on interoperability where you actually had some different disparate systems up on stage and some experts uh, on those platforms and, and uh, hooked to them together with some web services and did some stuff. Am I recalling this conversation correctly? I thought it was really cool.
3: You, you are. Might, might tell the, story. Uh, the, the solution that we provided, it was actually Richard Campbell and I did a, um, a duet session at TechEd. I guess that was last year in 2004 in San Diego. We had Oracle 10G running under Fedora and we had a SQL Server 2000 running under Windows 2003 server. And what we did is we had a .NET client that I wrote, which is a simple ASP.NET application. And the .NET client talked to the SQL Server 2000 machine. The SQL Server 2000 machine then used Enterprise Link Services to connect to the Oracle running on the Linux box. So then what we did is we wrapped all the PSQL sql calls inside of a T-SQL stored procedure. And then all those calls basically ran the queries, executed everything that we needed to do, inserted, edited, updated, deleted. And at one point, we decided to migrate the data in, in the session. We migrate the data over... And all we to the SQL Server, and all we did was change our stored procedures to no longer talk to the Oracle database, hmm. and talk to the, the local SQL Server database. So our ASP .NET application didn't have to change a single line of code, not even a connection string. Wow! So what we were demonstrating is when you do a big migration project, you migrate the data last.
1: Hmm.
3: Yeah, it's pretty interesting.
1: That is that. cool. That's very cool. Yeah, I thought that was a that may, makes for a good story, especially you know people struggle with interoperability out there all the time and it's good to hear some success stories. Even if- The
3: tools are there. I think, it, actually, if I remember correctly, two years ago when I was on the show, we were talking about some common interop and we were talking about how folks were a little hesitant to use common interop because, you know, there might be a few extra cycles here or there. And all the tools are there and this, the performance is there. You know, there's some little quirks when we did the Oracle. You know, a day or two of my life that I need to get back was about case sensitivity in Oracle. We just didn't think you know, our connection was working, but it actually was just that we were typing in queries and there was, we were typing in case-insensitive queries. So, mm. you know, SQL Server, we're not used to that, even though as a C Sharp developer we are, but uh, with um, SQL Server, we were like, oh, this, you know, select uppercase, lowercase, and um, Oracle is, you know, more strict that way.
1: And uh, this, uh, another, another point of interest that uh, we have been talking about a little bit on Mondays, actually, believe it or not, was this uh, developer .NET auction for uh, services for the to aid the tsunami victims? Tell us about that.
3: Sure. Um, what happens is, obviously, we all know about the tsunami. Well, Julie Lerman has up in Vermont. She's been doing a lot of consulting work for for free for the um, for an indigenous. Indonesian cherry that was set up um, after the Bali bombings they're based up in Bali and they're doing all this great aid work over in the province that was hit um, real hard and she decided to um, try to you know get some folks together and rally up support somehow and it came up the idea that an auction would go on and what happened was um, we got thirty. Basically, almost all regional directors, we've got about 25 regional directors and with 30 of us in total, put up an auction, a multiple-item auction on eBay, and it ran for 10 days. And 100% of the proceeds would go for uh, the tsunami relief we would give to this particular um, charity based in Indonesia. And the way it would work is that someone would bid for one hour of this consultant's time, either through phone or IM or email, presumably to do something like a code review or something like that. And um, the response was pretty overwhelming. We got, you know, obviously more bids than there were, um, you know, contractors available. And what we also did is eBay rules, I might not want to say this on the radio, but eBay rules say that a multiple-item auction, you pay the same amount as the lowest winning bid. Hmm. We kind of changed the rules and said, well, you pay whatever you want, um, as long as it's the minimum. Hmm. And whoever pays the most money will get the choice of the first contractor. Kind of like a little NFL-style draft and um somebody gave three thousand dollars for one hour so we're, we're poised to make well over ten thousand dollars
1: oh that's great
3: our, yeah it really is great it's all community-based no microsoft really was involved um julie came up with the idea she approached me to kind of organize it and rally the rds around it and uh we worked together as the day of the blizzard a couple of weeks ago and just built the e-day the ebay auction lots of emails and phone calls to the other people involved and um the auction, I think, just completed um, on Wednesday at nine AM, and um, it's great. So that's awesome. man. pretty excited about that.
1: Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, and and I know the people who want to hear about Yukon SQL two thousand five are, are just chomping at the bit. But uh, um, tell us a little bit about your background. You know your programming background and and uh, the kind of stuff that you've done. Brag a little bit.
3: Sure thing. I'm bragging something I can do pretty easily. <laughs> um, one of my favorite topics, I guess we're going on to, <laughs> is me. So um, I started programming seriously a little over 10 years ago on Wall Street. I was working at Fidelity Investments and moved over to IT, doing mostly risk management type stuff in like VB4, and took a little C and all that fun stuff, and eventually figured out that consulting was the you know, this is during the mid '90s stock market boom that led into the late '90s, early 2000 dot com boom, and decided maybe I want to start my own business because um, you know there's just easy money to be made, and I didn't know much about business, but back then it was easy. And luckily for me, is I learned kind of along the way because the market was very forgiving, and one thing led to another. I had some IP that I wound up selling to actually Microsoft Home Advisor, um, some wireless real estate stuff. And um, decided that I wanted to get out of the consulting business. That writing applications and selling it, and many times over, was the way to make money. And um, one thing led to another. I was looking for some venture capital, and I bumped in. I was actually firing clients, and one of my clients was a GAT survey, the restaurant people. And um, at this point, I was doing really high-end client server work. This was probably the late '90s. You know, end-tier development, large websites. Um, and Zagat was looking for a chief technology officer and that's where the story from the previous show came out. I was there for a couple of years building, you know, large scale web applications. But interestingly enough, we built probably some really huge content management, very custom survey management and content management stuff internally. Then the net alphas and betas came out and we were an early adopter. Mark Anders came to our shop and kind of sold us on huh. you know, net and So we were one of the first Windows Forms applications ever to be deployed. We deployed it on before Beta 2, so we actually deployed it on Beta 2 bits. And we got the demo in front of Bill Gates' team, and um, we were actually on the short list to be unveiled at Comdex as one of the um, .NET folks, and um, Continental Airlines beat us out. I guess they're a little more well-known than Zagat. After Zagat, I left there after a while and um, started a company with a business partner called Corzon, which kind of mines the web, um, both public places like government statistical data, um, private places like Dun & Bradstreet, stuff we buy, and then like the job boards. And we measure the hiring patterns of every company in the United States. And what we basically do is uh, take that data and kind of superimpose it over the government data. We're able to link them together with the Dun & Bradstreet data that we um, purchase. And we can kind of come up as a leading indicator for the job market. So we know when Alan Greenspan said there was a soft patch, you know, we, saw, we saw that soft patch in our data. You know, so we sell this to economists. We sell it to um, Wall Street firms, um, equity analysts. And then oddly enough, since we're scraping the, the uh, job boards, we sell it back to the job boards that we scraped from. So the technology we use there is a lot of regular expressions as you can probably imagine. I, I, I kind of dream about regular expressions. It's uh mm. it's kind of scary and we scrape about 3 million data elements a week, so you can imagine the size of my data warehouse. And we've been doing this for about 3 years, so the um, wow. my data warehouse is bigger and bigger each week, you know, by an order of magnitude. And um you know, so I spend a lot of time writing SQL code and managing regular expressions and of course our whole entire application is a um, you know, ASP.net application so yeah that's kind of where i spend my time
2: so steven um this is something i've been really curious about and 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 uh i've never really talked to anybody who's who's gone through and and done exactly what you're doing um but when it comes to regular expressions and scraping uh, other sites for data are there any legal issues at all that you encountered where you know you're using this data and then you're selling it and in some cases even selling it back
3: yeah that's I mean, that's an excellent question because we, I get that question all the time from the business folks, especially like mm-hmm. investors and, and, and business partners that are not interested in the technology of what we do. But
1: Other it's, people's lawyers.
3: Exactly. And <laughs> we spent probably a good $10,000 uh, with, with a law firm that would remain nameless. And um, going through those issues back when we were poor and the founders, myself and the other guy named Bruce, were not making any money. Um, we, were, we spent a good solid $10,000 in the bootstrap phase on this particular issue because uh, an investor did not want to touch us with a 10-foot pole. Hmm. And what we learned was that we are kind of there's like that thin line and we're on the correct side of the thin line, but we're, you know, we're pretty much... Um, pretty much um, in our legal rights to do so because what we're doing is we're taking the data and we're aggregating it. We're not really selling – we're not going out and saying, okay, I'm going to take this job off of Monster.com, post it on my website as it's my job, and then maybe have a link back to Monster or something. No, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, for the category of nurses in New York City – um, there are 482 job openings this week from these companies. Compared to last week, there were 287 job openings. And, of course, we do the statistical analysis to say, you know, there's the, you know, the increases, the decreases. So we're not really selling to the consumer or anyone the actual jobs themselves. We're just selling oh, okay. the aggregate data.
2: So you just consume the data and then you... Exactly. And then what we okay, do is we fair.
3: kind of crunch it on top of the government data with the Bureau of Labor Statistics data. That's all free data. And then we kind of have our own proprietary algorithms and data transformations on top of the Dun & Bradstreet data that we merge it with. So um, we went through that process and people were frightened. And um, we were very surprised because, you I know, mean, some of our first customers were the Wall Street firms. But then I believe as career builder was the first of the big job boards that came knocking on the door. And we're like, wait. we almost didn't want to pick up the phone. We're like, we oh, want to talk to oh, the career we. And my business partner, Bruce, who's the CEO, he um, he's met with the CEOs of actually all three of the big boards and some of the smaller ones like Dice.com. And you know, Dice.com is a customer of ours as well. So they can't really stop us if you think about it. Uh, I can tell you the solution that I came up with to have them – have me fly under the radar, but um, they can't really stop us from a legal standpoint, because what if I hired 10,000 interns that needed some money,
4: hmm. and
3: um, yeah. they basically had a big Excel spreadsheet and manually went to every URL, it's public data, so right. they really mm-hmm. can't stop us that way, but I've written some, written an architect some pretty unique ways to kind of prevent my IP address from ever coming up on their, um, on their clickstream reports. Hmm.
2: Oh wow. Because I was gonna think that possibly uh, your traffic might increase overall stats and make it a little easier to get uh, advertising dough anyway, although maybe your usage is so small that it's not even a drop in the pond for them.
3: Well if you think about it, if we if you think of CareerBuilder, we just hit every every week we hit every page they have. Mm-hmm. Right? Just once. So we, we spider the entire site, but mm-hmm. we're not really, you know, going crazy we triggered at yahoo for hot jobs we triggered their automatic denial of service attack software um, because we were going a little too fast faster than a human being would do it so all we do is put a little delay in and of course
2: <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> to
3: top it. but what happens is a couple we're now moving into automotive um and we're selling to we have a couple customers we just started our second vertical we've been spidering some automotive sites and they've not been as receptive. As the other folks have. Now we know we're within our legal rights. We've spoken to these sites, but they have some automated software that kind of just turns off our IP addresses. Or so like, you know, what do we do? So there's a bunch of free proxy servers out there, mm-hmm. and um, you can basically <laughs> have a, a free proxy server to kind of, you know, protect against identity theft and being anonymous on the this internet. Kind
1: of sleazy, man, isn't it? I mean,
3: yeah, the the proxy
1: server. No, just the whole, you know. You're consuming data without their consent, you know? Hey, but he's making money. There's nothing <laughs> sleazy about that.
3: Well I'm not consuming well I'm not consuming data without their consent because I'm within the bounds of their um terms of use. So yeah. it's actually they're just not we're just tripping off their denial-of-service software. It's not really that they're trying to shut us down. If they were trying to shut us down, they would send us angry cease-and-assist letters and that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, they know full well we're doing it. Okay. They just won't give us any help when it comes to their um, turning off their <clears throat> denial anti-denial-of-service software. I
1: had a very similar <laughs> experience, and, uh, and I don't mind publicly humiliating them because, uh, because I'm really mad. <laughs> but uh, this, I, I, I joined the Connecticut Technology Council, and I'm not humiliating. I'm just telling a story. I joined the Connecticut Technology Council, which is a group of people here in in the state of Connecticut, the great state of Connecticut, that, uh, you know, belong to technology companies and they get together and they hobnob and they have lectures and dinners and functions and stuff. And it's wonderful. And uh, so I joined, uh, this was before I started teaching uh, Franklin's Net. I had a company called World Train. I was writing some software for uh, uh, remote training. So. Uh, so I went up there and uh, basically found that I was, you know, close. Really, really couldn't pierce the the armor. I, it was very difficult to meet people. Very difficult to to figure out what people were doing. I mean, you basically went to a function. You had about five minutes in between talks to to do any kind of networking whatsoever. There really wasn't facilitating networking at all, but they had a website and every member of the technology council had a little thing on the website with information about their company, uh, and their email address and their contact info. And it was really buried though. And, and, you know, my stuff was up there too, but, you know, I didn't get the sense that the other members were, uh, you know, going and using that as a networking thing. So I emailed the the guy and I said, Hey, I'd really like to, uh, you know, introduce myself to the members. Can I send a message to, to all the other members and let them know that I just joined and, you know, where I am and what I do and, you know, see if there's any potential for collaboration or whatever. And, uh, I got back a nasty email saying that basically, uh, you know, no, that's a, there'll be a breach of privacy, blah, bloody blah, 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 you know, we can't do that. And, and yet all their email addresses were on the website. And, uh, you know, I asked a couple of times and he basically told me to pound sand, and so I wrote a little application, screen scraped the website, got all the email addresses and names and stuff, and and wrote out a letter. And I got a lot of very positive uh, letters back. And this, of course, was way before spam was a big problem. Right. And uh, you know, other you know, people weren't that sensitive. They didn't get that much email. You didn't get hundred emails a day. So um, I got a lot of did a lot of great networking and worked out well. And then I canceled my subscription. You know, my membership. Uh, 'cause that was kind of useless and and I got a call from them the next year, and it was, Hey, you know Carl, uh would you like to uh sign up again and I told him the story you know, <laughs> and he basically said well you 're obviously one of these gee whiz whiz kid technology guys who you know you know most of our members wouldn 't do that, and you know you've you 've obviously found a way to you know and I said, well, you know, aren't you the Connecticut Technology Council? Isn't this something that you should be able to facilitate doing? Uh, it just boggles my mind, you know, when th- that there are institutions out there that that have, you know, every intention of facilitating uh, whatever it is that they're doing, and yet they don't have the, the very simple technology or even rules set up to allow it to happen.
2: Um, so –
1: Steve, you wanted
2: to talk about um, ClickStream.
3: hmm So basically is a big problem that we would have for these anti-denial service uh, software that kind of would kick in is we might hit the site and we go to a web page that says, you know, page one of 17, you know, displaying 500 jobs. Well, we have to walk down that site all 17 pages. So we have a lot of regular expressions that go get the hrefs, then we do other HT posts. So if there's, you know, 10 items on a page and we're going to 17 we're going to 17 pages, we have to go make 100, 170 hits to the website pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So what we basically are going to do is we would use this on our regular machine. Now our IP address could be kind of blocked because the anti-denial service software thinks that we're you know sending over all these packets. So what we did is we found some free um, proxy servers out on the Internet, and we keep around a list of them in a database table and every single request that we do comes from a different using a different proxy using the um you know the dot net um web classes. Mm-hmm. So we have a different proxy for each page. So on 170 hits in a matter of, you know, you know, one minute, if we have 50 or 60 proxies in our database, the same IP address will only be on that click stream two or three times. But yet we mm-hmm. know how to re-architect that call together. So it's virtually impossible now for anyone to really know where our traffic is coming from.
2: Oh, that's wow. awesome. That is pretty Yeah, cool. it's
3: pretty neat. And what's what's cool is some of these, the proxy servers eventually kind of you know go away they're no longer available so our app because we spider 24/7 so our application keeps track of that and actually will stop and then go scrape the site that has the free proxy service put them into the database let's refresh and then keep using new proxies so essentially what
0: you've done is you've converted your application from a denial of service attack to a distributed denial of service attack <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah just don't tell anybody <laughs> we're completely benign <laughs>
2: <laughs> so so from the, from the geeky kind of point of view, Stephen, whenever you guys are adding a new company whose website you're going to scrape to your application, how do you have it set up? Do you have like a set of interfaces or do you have like a set of abstract classes that, you know, you, you implement and then you just drop a DLL in a directory and it gets picked up and, and becomes part of the whole Great application? Question. How are you guys doing that?
3: Well, the, the way it really works is we're, we're database driven. So we add the regex patterns to a table. And hmm. we have a big kind of URL table that says, you know, these are all the URLs to scrape. And we just constantly are looping through that table. Hmm. So we add the records to the URL table. And if the particular, and then there's a couple codes, so the application knows how oh, do I handle you this way, and I know how to handle you that way. So, what will happen is we'll go down kind of the queue, and if an application needs something specific, we have a factory class, and we just kind of pull it out, and then say, okay, for this particular site, you know, use this little block of code. So, the application hmm. itself, sometimes when we add a site, will run unmodified. We just add the patterns and the URLs and the identification uh, values into the database.
1: Hmm. Wow. Cool. That pretty- that's That's pretty slick, man.
3: Yeah, because... Scraping and search, you know, search is the big thing right now, right? You right. know, the way, you know, the internet was a few years ago and the way, whatever. And you hear MSN search and Google and this and that. And so all these little companies are forming to, to do scraping so people can start doing local search and things like that. And they've all approached us and none of them are database driven. Hmm. They all kind of like go out there and scrape pages and kind of recreate the internet. And, you know, we're database driven. So we've, we've not been able to use any of these vendors because we've, did a complete homegrown application, but it shows the power of integrating with the database.
2: Yeah. Hmm.
1: Folks, do yourself a favor and check out our friends' Data Dynamics website, datadynamics.com. Makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for uh, Windows Forms and ASP.net. Very nice stuff. You can pile the, uh, the reports right into your application, ship them with your assemblies. Uh, has all the great features you come to expect in a reporting engine. And you can use uh, ActiveX controls right in the reports, too. So great stuff! Uh, Data Dynamics has been an excellent sponsor of .NET Rocks uh, for a long time. They, uh, you know, they deserve a little bit of uh, your love and attention. So go check them out at www.datadynamics.com. So, uh, what have you been doing in Yukon? And before you answer that, let me just ask, uh, as, as sort of an aside, I get the sense that you're a busy guy with a lot of, you know, high level things on your plate. How much actually rolling up your sleeves and writing code do you do these days? Like, how much uh, attention are you paying to, you know, syntax, uh, or, or are you mostly zoomed out at the architecture level?
3: Well, what's interesting is Corzin uh, is a pretty small company. We have. Um five permanent employees, three of them are technical. So as a CTO, I run the entire tech division, which is three people, myself included. Mm. And then we have two contractors in India. And um, well, we have two different firms in India, one that does some development where I manage two and a half developers there. And then we have a data entry firm in India. and um, They do a lot of data entry with a lot of our research products. We have a lot of government research products. So I spend a lot of time, as you can tell, managing, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say that's probably a solid 25% of my time. And mm. I spend probably 50% of my time architecting. Mm-hmm. I'm the lead architect, and um, I, write, I probably spend the other 25% coding. So I do actually mm. write a fair amount of code because we are small.
4: Mm.
3: And um, I still lead the code review by two developers locally and remotely in India. Mm. And I also speak at a lot of software conferences, so mm. I have to write all my material. And um, you know, it's all material that I write. I don't use other folks' material. So I'm actually pretty much in there. I'm a little surprised. Um, At the GATT, it was a little different. It's a bigger company. There was about 150 people. and The tech division was about 35 to 40 people. I probably spent about 50% of my time managing and um, only maybe 10 or 20% of my time architecting, maybe 10 or 20% of my time coding, and maybe 5% of my time you know, in meetings and just wasting time or 5 or 10% of my time wasting.
1: So I take it you've had opportunity to dive into the, the syntax of the, uh, you know, sort of the low-level stuff in SQL 2005.
3: Oh, down to the point where I've really investigated two specific areas where, just specifically mentioning syntax, yeah. where syntax is kind of interesting is T-SQL. I've really kind of gotten down as I'm not bullish on the CLR stored procedures, and I can explain why as we progress. Okay. So I've really thrown, thrown myself behind the new features of T-SQL, uh, the common table expressions and the ranking and windowing functions.
1: Whoa, whoa, and, whoa, uh, whoa. Common table expressions and ranking and windowing functions. Have yeah, you heard of them? No, well, yeah, but let's, uh, let's talk about those. Okay. Just briefly. Uh,
3: a common table expression in SQL Server 2000 is a non-persisted view. So it gives you the ability to declare a block of code, which will be a select statement, and then use that block of code. So I can say... um without kind of having a coding in front of me for the audience to hear, I can kind of speak, it, speak through it is you can say with and give it an, an alias name, and then you have like select star from this table or wherever you want to do it. And that's kind of in, close in parentheses. And then what you do is you have another SQL statement that refers to your previous statement. Mm, okay. And then you can join it, you can aggregate it, you can do whatever you want in it. Wow. And the neat thing about it is that it goes out of scope. It goes out of memory the minute your query goes out of scope.
1: It's stack-based. That's cool.
3: Yeah, and the neat thing about this is it gives you the ability that, of course, to do recursive queries real easily. Oh,
1: yeah,
4: sure.
3: Yeah. And the reason they, they mean, you know, the team, the reason why the T-SQL team over in UConn has built common table expressions in the first place. So there are so many times today as, um, when I'm using SQL 2000, and Mondays I tend to write a lot of SQL code because our weekly process finishes Sunday night, so we're always kind of writing ad hoc queries or fixing something or doing something. And I'm telling you at least two times a day, I'm like, oh, I wish I had the common table expressions in Mm -hmm. 2000 already. You know, when I, especially if you do anything with a temp table or a cursor or a self-join, you already know you could be using a common table expression.
1: Yeah, that's sweet. And the windowing functions.
3: The windowing functions are really cool because they're really rank, well, they're ranking and windowing functions. So one of the things that basically you can do is you can have, there's four different types of ranking functions. The first one is row number, which will give you a row number over an expression that you define. So you can say, you know, select star from customers, rank over customer ID. And if you have 100 customers in your table, it'll give you one, it'll give you a row number. And that's pretty neat if you want to kind of sort by the row numbers and do things like that interestingly enough is these ranking functions you can't reference to them in a where clause so how would you think you could reference them in a where clause you create a common table expression and filter by the column Mm -hmm. so you can actually kind of combine these features together so rank will give you rankings the way the olympics will give you a ranking you know gold silver bronze and if two people get a gold there's no silver there's just a bronze and then there's something called a dense rank, which will do the same thing, but it'll fill in the gaps. So it'll give you a gold, a silver, you know, two golds, a silver, and a bronze. And then there's the percentile, or the end tile which will evenly distribute all of your data across um, a value you give it. So if I say, you know, percentile mm. over this column 100, it'll break it down into 100%. You know, mm. if you have 100 um, records, it'll give you 1 through 100. If you have 1,000 records, you know, you'll have 10 at 1.
1: That's really slow.
3: And three. They're really cool and they only exist just like a common table expression. They only exist in the scope of your query. So they're not permanent. And that's what's neat about them. I've been yeah. doing a lot of writing with these common table expressions and with these um, you know ranking and windowing functions. And you would have to do these obnoxious, you know, like outer yeah, joins, say. self joins, and um, you know, it's I, just it's crazy. I've and always been really one of save the... you a lot of time
1: that's real that's what i was going to say man that uh you know joins are one of the things that i like least about programming in t-sql or or you know developing stored procs in t-sql and uh that's really going to save quite a quite a bit of uh effort wasted brain power i call it you know? Yeah,
3: especially in tables that have what I call a domestic key. Domestic key is what I what I call a self-referencing column, where you have you know the the classic mm. reports to instead of a foreign key. I call it a domestic key. Mm-hmm. Name's kind of stuck in my sh- in all the shops I've ever worked in. And some database architects like to use that, and then you do these weird self joins, and now you can just do a um, a union all common table expression and kind of recursively walk down the stack. It's really cool.
1: Slick. So anyway, you were on your way to make another point. Uh, well, you, would talk,
3: you asked me about syntax, and you were yeah. trying to geek out a little bit. And yeah. the other thing that has really kind of weirdo syntax, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, is once you've mastered regular expressions, you have no fear. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so,
3: so the other thing that I decided to tackle, and um, partly Mark, because Mark I Mark Dunn geek- thinks
1: those look like a cartoon character swearing.
3: Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like more like a cartoon character swearing in Japanese. <laughs> so... What happens is I decided to take upon uh, the XQuery um, engine inside of SQL Server 2005. And um, it's really neat because there's an XML data type built into SQL Server 2000. So now we have an intrinsic type. The cool thing is now you can query individual columns and you can say, you know, I want to see this particular piece of XML where an element inside of that column is equal to this expression. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really cool stuff. So It it makes parsing easy. Excuse me?
1: I was was just going to say it makes parsing really easy.
3: Oh, it makes parsing really easy. And, you know, back in the Zagat days, if you remember, um, you know, we were talking about that, is we believe in highly, highly relational databases, you know, for OLTP. And internally at Zagat, we had these really big relational databases, you know, 12th normal form, you know, and I believe I made a couple of Dr. Cod references on the last show, and got a bunch of emails. Like, who's Dr. Cod? Yeah, right. Um, who, who, since has passed away? I think since that episode, actually. Uh-huh. And um, Dr. Cod, the inventor of the relational model, and so we had. What we've basically discovered is everyone discovers really early on reporting off of relational data sucks. Yeah. Um, I'd rather be kind of you know at high altitude without my crampons on yeah. than uh, code <laughs> super high, highly relational database for um you know big large reports.
1: Some overzealous codites had gotten into the database where I worked in uh, in this startup firm in California, and you know just to have like a something that you would normally express in two or three tables and be you know pretty pretty darn relational these guys wanted to split into like 12 or 13 uh, i can remember doctors and patients but since they both have names we made a names table oh boy oh yeah and you know it was just like
3: <laughs> let's normalize first name let's normalize Yeah. First
1: name. <laughs> where do you stop i mean where do you stop? stop already you well, know I why doesn't stop. this why doesn't this thing work well maybe it's cuz you have 17 joins here you're just trying to return a simple query it was horrible. Yeah.
3: Well, you know, this first normal form and second normal form and this, you know, I think most people go up to like third, some people go up to fifth normal form. There's also like I think there's seventeen normal forms. And I think once you go past about six or seven, you really have to have like a PhD and no one really does it in the real world. It's
1: just so impractical.
3: Right. So as you discovered and I discovered, and everyone's discovered if you work with databases, you transform the data to a nice flat reporting table. Yeah. So, which works great on the web. However, it's a gap we had some unique kind of um, requirements is that we had to transform our data to a variety of different platforms. We had to transform the data. We did a browser sniff if you were on the WAP phones, you know, the mobile phones. And this is five years ago, so it wasn't even, um, you know, it wasn't even anything, you know, anything else. So what happens is we basically did these XSLT transformations on the server or sometimes on the client, depending if it was an IE browser. But we had no way to query what was inside of that XML field. So as Mm. we transform that XML field out, so we stored XML in the database on our website, but we had to store all the search columns inside of the table. So we had primary key, you know, search column one, search column two, search column three, and then like the XML field. So Mm. now with XQuery, and it's pretty darn fast, with XQuery, you can just throw an XQuery right against that XML column and, you know, take out Mm. whatever you need. Mm. Yeah, there's a couple things you need to do to get XQuery to work. You need a primary key on your table, a regular primary key, and then you need an XML schema bound to your XML um, column because you don't want, I mean, you don't have to, but, I mean, you don't want uh, XQuery to think everything's just text, right? You want to have an XML schema to define the actual XML you're searching against. And then you create an XML index. SQL Server 2000 gives you the ability to create indices on XML columns. Right. And you create what's called a primary index, which all it really does is links your XML column to the primary key of the table. Hmm. And Then you can create one of three types of indices over that index. Uh, the first would be for fields. Uh, the other one would be for path. And the other one would be for properties. Properties you're only concerned about if you're trying to query out schema. Path would kind of speed up your XPath expressions if you have a really huge XML document with lots of attributes and elements. And then the data for value is where you would actually, you know, it actually would index the actual, you know, things that are in between the tags. So you want to probably always put a really good, um, you probably would always want to put in a uh, value index and an index for the, um, actual XPath itself. So I've done some speed tests on this, and it performs lightning fast.
1: I was going to say, when really you good stuff. When you said pretty darn fast, what does that mean?
3: Well, I mean, I've put in um, tables about 31,000 records and a pretty large XML column itself, meaning I put in, you know, like an invoice type of a thing that might have, you know, hundreds of records on it for some of the examples. Okay. And I wanted to query out maybe just, you know, where this particular attribute, this tiny little attribute, and it comes back in subsecond response time. It comes back hmm. just as fast as I'm writing a relational query. Wow! And the beauty of it is, you—if you have other relational columns inside of your table, you can actually um, combine X query and regular SQL expressions in one T SQL statement. Jeez. You can say select star from table where customer um, state equals New York and X query equal—you know—your X query expression equals this, and Sweet. then it will give you back all the matches.
1: Wow, that's really cool.
3: Yeah, it's really neat. Does this know.
1: require GUIDs for primary keys?
3: No, nope, you can have any kind of primary key that you want, as long as it's not the XML column itself. The XML column hmm. cannot be a foreign or a um, primary key.
1: Speaking of GUIDs, can actually
3: create a unique index over your XML okay. uh, data.
1: Speaking of, right, because you could have duplicate. Um, speaking of GUIDs, though, uh, what's your what's your take on that in general? I know you probably don't have a hard and fast rule, but are you a big fan of using GUIDs as primary keys?
3: I only would use them in a scenario where I'm doing something in a replicated environment where I'm pushing data out and folks in the field can enter data that would be in the same table. Mm-hmm. Um I'm a fan of meaningless primary keys, you know, identity mm-hmm. seeds, mm-hmm. and a GWID is a perfectly acceptable form of it, slightly more overhead mm-hmm. uh, because it's a little bigger, but um, I have no real opinion either way, shape, or form. All right. My preference is for just a regular integer with a with an identity column on it.
1: I guess the, the people, the pro-GUID camp would say, you know, they're dif- more difficult to get wrong because, you know, if you just get off by one or something like that, you can be in you know, number hell, integer hell, so to speak, right? But, but uh,
3: I'm not sure why they make that argument because the theory behind an identity column is that it is meaningless, meaning right. it's just an, we call that, you know, a surrogate key, you know, right. I mean, in database theory. It's just, it's just. Meaning completely meaningless. Yeah. So if I have gaps in my primary key, I could care less. I can always run a DBCC, you know, um, I forget the exact command off the top of my head, and resequence my primary key. Meaning is if I've deleted some data and I want to start from the latest, from the highest number, I can reorder my seed. But if you're making if you're making your primary key mean something, meaning is my primary key represents something in the real world, then. um then, by all means, use a real piece of data. If you're trying to force your, you know, your auto number to be something, you're doing something wrong.
1: You know, that's an interesting uh, thing you say. That our .NET rocks site, our old one actually, and the new one as well. When you select a show, you know, from the archives, uh-huh. uh, it passes a, a primary key show ID, which is just a number in the database, a primary key. And the shows have numbers, show numbers, right? Show number one, show number 100 is coming up next week. This is 99. And the numbers don't necessarily jive with the primary keys. Now, we started out in sync, and then we got one off. And people were seeing that show ID equals up on the URL and saying, hey, man, your numbers are off. And it's like, no, it's just a primary key. Will you shut up and leave me alone? But, you know, it did cause a lot of confusion about, you know, our numbering being off. (laughs)
3: <laughs> right, exactly. Well, if you were using SQL Server two thousand five, you can use a row the row number uh, right. ranking function that would give you an automatic sequential number That's and cool. then use, use that That's as your cool. query string. Yeah. But I'm also very opinionated about using query strings in particular. I, I try to avoid them like the plague. Yeah, because yeah. of that exact reason. Yeah, and you, don't don't, you don't you want to have to show another. that. Yeah, there's not much you can do in that such circumstance.
1: Yeah. Well, the other thing that uh, we would do is probably just make it query by show number instead of show ID, but uh, and that would lessen people's confusion.
3: Don't you think but, uh, people who email you with those type of questions just are paying a little too much attention to the URL? And I, the, You know,
1: sometimes I wonder, you know, when I get emails like this, if I'm not paying enough attention.
3: <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, I think it just, if you think of just database integrity and database theory, it's... You know that that number is meaningless. So right. I can see why people were confused because they sure. would think the show number would equal the show ID. Sure. Yeah. If you used a GUID now or a GUID, then then they we, would be. Total, always been a debate. That's my yeah, New York accent, say. right? It's Ken gets gooey-dee. told me it's GUID. It's actually GUID.
1: Yeah. Well, on the West Coast they say GUID. I think. Exactly. Ken being from gooey. the West
3: Coast, who's recently moved to the <laughs> East Coast, so maybe he'll start saying GUID. I'm not sure. I doubt it.
1: <laughs> now all those right. people down in Florida are going to start saying GUID. Is what's going to happen. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, and then it's going to kind of pull Yeah, it's going to going. north.
1: We're screwed. <laughs> We're losing our identity, man.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the GUIDs. And uh, if you use the GUID, I guess it would be, or you could do another thing is you can use the random seed. And then, you know, you can have show ID 4678412.
1: I I don't know, I'd feel a little bit strange about using randomness unless the number was really, really, really big and there was no chance that they would duplicate. Or does it it not duplicate?
3: I mean, it it will never duplicate unless you've deleted. I mean, automatically, if you use the SQL Server identity column in any version of SQL Server going back to at least 4.3, and before that I don't really have any experience with it, um, if you use the seed and it's going to be random, it will never duplicate a value. Hmm. Now, in theory, you could have deleted a value, and then you know that that value can be back later on at some right. other point in life. Right. But good database developers never delete anything, right? We just flag it as inactive.
1: So you said you're you're sort of anti CLR, VB, C sharp uh, stored procedures. And um, do you see any possible you know use for them, oh,
3: absolutely, procedure wise? I, I don't wanna I don't want to really go on record saying I'm completely anti them. They're they're pretty cool and they have a use. However, I don't think they're gonna be this new thing that's gonna propel us off into the future the way that, you know, um all all the other things that have been hyped for Microsoft in the past were like web services and everything else. I think what happens is there's a really good use for C L R stored procedures in one case. And that's the case where you're in SQL Server 2000 and you're a developer and you're sitting in front of Query Analyzer and you go, hmm, I really think I now need to make an extended stored procedure. And I'm gonna go out into VB or C++ and I'm gonna write myself a DLL and I'm gonna compile it and register it. And then I'm gonna kind of just, you know, instantiate that DLL from inside of my SQL Server stored procedure with mm-hmm. an extended stored procedure.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And so wherever you're going to use an extended stored procedure, in SQL Server 2000, you should be using the CLR stored procedures in UConn at SQL Server 2005. If you're migrating your database over, it'd probably be really cool to rewrite all of your extended stored procedures in .NET and use extended stored you know, using the CLR right. stored procedures. Right. Because T-SQL is the most efficient way you're going to retrieve and edit and update and delete data. Right. Um, CLR stuff is going to be the most efficient way to, let's say, do something like a regular expression pattern inside of your database or right out to the file system. So what about you're never going to use the CLR for data access. You're going to use it for other stuff, which, yeah. as I said, would be like an extended stored procedure.
1: Yeah, that, 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 that's essentially what I, my, uh, my thoughts are, too. Anytime you would have an extended stored procedure, that's your I, – I guess, you know, there's been a lot of warning flags in earlier shows that as soon as we knew this was possible – you know, we were putting up the warning flag saying, you know, you don't, don't think that you're going to be writing all of your stored procs in, in VB and C sharp now. And, uh, you know, although I did talk to, uh, a couple of DBAs who were previously developers, you know, developers turned DBAs and they're really happy about that because now they're using tools that they're familiar with. But I think there's also a lot of DBAs out there who are not developers and, uh, and maybe are you know starting to take some training classes or learn a little bit about development because they know that they're going to have to brush up against it. Um, you know, what, what do you think about that?
3: Well, I think that it, what I think about that is that it's a really a very different paradigm writing code in TSQL than in um, you know than in, in VB or C Sharp. VB and C Sharp are you know they come from the history of very procedural language. You know, we do things like looping and stuff like that. T-SQL is set-based, right? So, you know, SQL basically returns data in a data set, well, not data set in the .NET word, right, but a data set environment. And you have to think of it in that respect. And that's why a lot of developers who are turned T-SQL developers or developers turned to DBAs, they they tend to write a lot of cursors and consume a lot of resources because that's what where is developers very familiar with. So, I would recommend all DBAs and database developers to um, you know, really kind of go out and take a good, nice class on T-SQL and, you know, figure it out. And and when you're sitting in front of, you know, Enterprise Manager or the Query Analyzer, basically say something like, you know, now I'm thinking like a data person. I'm not thinking like a VB or C-Sharp programmer. And then vice versa when you're in VB. You know, when you're in VB and C-Sharp, you're consuming data, you're looping through it, you're sending requests back. When you're in T-SQL, you're... Thinking of data, you know, coming back as a as a yeah. um, you know nice set based language. Hmm.
2: So I wanted to ask a question just about uh, the general layout of things. Like when you install uh, SQL Server two thousand five, mm-hmm. is it installing its own uh, .NET runtime? I mean, how, how is this working? Where's everything coming from?
3: Uh, that's exactly what happens is SQL Server 2005 actually hosts the version of the CLR. It will be the same version of the CLR that, um, you know, ships in would be, you know, .NET 2.0. But it actually does host it internally. Internally, I think they call it SQL OS or something like that. Um, don't quote me that because I'm not 100% sure of what it's called. And by default, it's turned off um, so if you want to use the .net features you actually have to turn it on which is a tsql command that you can use to turn on the um you know the clr. Let me let me and ask you to out. clarify
1: that. And you're saying that even if you don't have the standard .net framework runtime installed you don't, it, don't don't worry about it because this isn't this isn't going to install it and use it. It's going to have something within its own directory structure. Or is it going to require the the standard framework runtime?
3: It's going to require the standard framework, but it hosts it in its own okay. address. Okay, just memory. like
1: ASP.NET does. Exactly. IS, rather, yeah. Right. Okay.
3: It works right, cool. exactly like that. So if you compile a, so you can't use, let's say, something that's in the global assembly cache, right? Because SQL Server won't understand it, and it doesn't. You know, it's not talking to that. You know, instance of the CLR it has its own instance of the hmm. CLR. So you need the regular framework, um, SQL installed by default. Obviously, you know we're still in beta, so we're not sure how the um, fundamentals of the install will run. But from all the betas, you basically install the framework, then you install the actual database engine, and mm. you register the assemblies that so you can write your CLR stored procedures. You, you register those assemblies inside of SQL Server. There's actually T-SQL commands that you use to register the assemblies, so it's all done within SQL Server itself.
1: Mm. Almost seems like SqL server is being this little operating system in and of itself
3: in in some degrees yeah that's exactly what it's like hmm. at least for hosting the c l r
1: yeah interesting and uh in terms of you know processes and memory usage what's what's going on there with uh you know one per database one per server what's uh what's memory usage
3: one per one per database server, not one per database itself. Per instance? I could be wrong on that.
1: Per instance, is that what you're saying?
3: I believe it's one, yeah, right, one for each instance of, um, you know, Yukon you have going. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. And as I, it's a much better and tighter and cleaner implementation than extended stored procedures, which were almost a hack to some degree. Just kind of, that was just forced in there because there was a need and Microsoft gave us a way to fill that need. But with the, um, you know, CLR store procedures, it's, you know, as we can see with all the hosting and everything else, it's much tighter and neater. It's just, as as you said, with those red flags, I don't want to see developers going and writing tons of data right. access code in, in VB.net or right. C Sharp.
1: Yeah, the, the typical, you know, uh, scenarios. hey, we can now move all our business logic into the database. Oh, goodness. I mean, yeah, you don't <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> Please don't do that. Don't even think about doing that
3: give all the consultants out there lots of work to do to go clean up.
1: Dr. Cod, come whip your ass.
3: Exactly. <laughs> Here's one of my reasons why I think Microsoft gets a bad rap, is because since they give us all this power, right. all, it, you can do it a million different ways, so lots of folks, the the, the entry point to developing at Microsoft technology is very easy, meaning is you can go in and kind of start using this stuff and eventually get better. And, you know, the entry point for the Oracle guys is much harder. It's a you know, much, there's less tools and there's a lot more syntax and it's a lot harder. So they usually get the comp side type guys and the true kind of geeky, geeky guys like that. And quite frankly, they just usually will, their developers usually will architect something um, a lot more stricter and, um, you know, in the market, Microsoft world is you have a lot of guys just throwing some things together every now and again. And what will happen is the, you know, Microsoft will get blamed for maybe a couple poor designs here or there. Yeah. Um, and that's why... Seen that a thousand times.
1: In the training business, we're always hearing, you know, we want best practices. We want best practices because you literally have, just like you said, bazillions of ways to do everything. So people want to know the best way. I guess that's what the PAG group is all about. Exactly. Well, ha- tell- really
3: great stuff coming from that group. Oh yeah,
1: and and they're doing stuff with SQL 2005 too, aren't they?
3: Absolutely, yeah.
1: yeah. Um- I've
3: been going through their um, threats and countermeasures for um, ASP .NET security book recently. That's been mm. what's my hot topic. Um, just you know, I'm getting a little paranoid. We had somebody write a fraudulent check um, from our corporate checking account for $16,000 the other day, and I've just started saying, hmm, we need to pay a little more attention to security, even though that is nothing – someone writing a false check on our account has nothing to do with web security, but it's just kind of like, hmm. So I went out and bought the book, and I've really been going through it.
1: Hmm. Uh, tell us, uh, for the uninitiated, what our experience of UConn is going to be like in Visual Studio, at least as far as you know.
3: Well, the neat thing about it is you fire up you know, Visual Studio 2005 – and just like today where you get, you know, you choose your language, you know, VB, C-sharp. Choose your language, and let's say you click on C-sharp, and you get the database. I'm sorry, you get the um, project types. And what I think is pretty cool is you have a project type that says, um, you know, Windows, Forms, you know, ASP, Web Service, and there's one that says Database. So you click on the database project, and the first thing it does is it asks you for a connection, and you, you know, provide a connection. And then you can just type in a regular, you know, VB or C-sharp method, you know, like your traditional Hello World, you know, that takes input parameters and returns output parameters, and you compile it, Then you go over to, um, you know, just like a regular standard type of, um, you know, Visual Studio class that you would create. And then you go over to, um, you know, SQL Server, and you can start using that method. You have to register it with SQL Server, which is just a, pretty much a line of code. And then, boom. You know, you you can basically call that as it's a user-defined function, or if it's a stored procedure, however you decided to declare it. Hmm. And the neat thing about it is you can use .NET types or SQL types. And we know that nulls are handled differently in SQL Server than they are in .NET. So, you know, you can make decisions on what type of types you want to use, which can get you into trouble, but also gives you a little bit more flexibility. So, um,
1: so yeah. What are the What are the best practices around mapping null values between? ADO.NET, say, in, in SQL 2005? Uh,
3: my best practice that I've come up with yet, and, you know, the product isn't released yet, so obviously take it with a grain of salt, but I've been playing with the product for two years now. My best practice is to always use the SQL data types. So you would have the same functionality that you would have in, you know, SQL Server unless you need to do something specific. So
1: and then you cast I would say, Excuse me? And then you just cast to whatever you
3: need, right? Exactly, yeah. right. You just cast it to whatever you need to do that'd be the best practice that I would recommend for all the developers out there.
1: That yeah, makes sense.
3: Excellent. Yeah. I mean, I've only done that. I mean, we have a couple of, um, we have Yukon running on a couple boxes at the office and all of our, our DTS transformations are now using the new, um, they call it now SQL server integration services. And, you know, we've luckily have, um, gotten to be friendly with the team because we found a couple bugs because we've moved a lot of stuff over. And, um, in a development mode and logged in, logged in even a couple showstoppers and they've been pretty grateful for us finding those bugs early on.
1: Hey, do you mind if I just shift uh, quickly out of 2005 and, and more to a, a more IT uh, question, sure. which is something that I'm, I'm really interested in and have not had the opportunity to do. And that is clustering like SQL okay. server clustering. Have you done that?
3: I've not done SQL server clustering. No, I have not. It's, okay. um, I've done partitioning tables over multiple disks. I mean, okay. I'm sorry, partitioning a database over multiple disks. So I have multiple file groups. But SQL Server clustering itself is actually clustering the same SQL Server database over multiple particular machines. machines. Yeah. What I've done, and this is what we did at TIGAD and a couple other places, is done a warm backup with a um, transaction log shipping. So then, hmm. you know, we do a backup maybe every hour, and then we do the transaction log shipping at every checkpoint or something like that.
1: Transaction um, log shipping, what's that?
3: Basically, is you ship your transaction log over to another machine, which is, in theory, oh, okay. an identical machine. So you take a, you do a checkpoint and you do a backup. Um, then you take that backup and apply that backup to another machine. So if you have machine A, which is your live wire, you know, machine that's up on the internet that powers, you know, fagat.com or franklinnet.com or whatever. And every hour, let's just say, we use that for the sake of argument, you have lots of traffic. Every hour you take a backup and presumably your website's going to have a lot of static stuff that doesn't need to be backed up, right? That's transformed from your production data back in your back office. So you really want to back up like your credit card transactions and that type of stuff. So presumably you're not backing up even a tremendous amount of data, but you want to back it all up because every, you know, your Amazon.com, let's say, you don't have to back up all your book data, but you have to back up all of your transactional data, which I put into two separate databases on the website and even have different user accounts. Hmm. So if somebody tries to do some type of funky SQL injection on my query strings, they're going to be using a read-only SQL server account unless they're doing something on my online shop, which is... A different database itself using SSL and everything else probably has no query strings. So what will happen is you take your your actual backup, apply it to the other machine, and then what happens is after that backup, what you do is you have your transaction log and you ship the log over to the other machine in case within that hour the other machine goes down. And then what you do is you flip the switch over to use the other machine and apply the transaction log over. You're pretty much up to date.
1: That's pretty cool. So in, in, um, what's, your, what's your opinion on using RAID for SQL Server databases? RAID 5, RAID 0 plus 1, you know, what's, um, what's me, the best?
3: Before I answer that question, let me just get back to with the clustering. is one of the reasons why I about yeah, sure. clustering okay. was because I've always found that if you architect your application, you know, I don't believe you can kind of be scalable by you know, adding lots of hardware. I don't yeah. think, you know, if you look at the definition of scalability, you know, adding more units of work and lowering the cost of unit per work I choose to always say you can't scale a website with hardware and that's what a clustering solution is. So if you architect your ASP.NET application and your stored procedures in your database to be rock solid, every website I've ever worked on and I've even seen behind the scenes like big sites like superbowl.com and you know, I've been at, inside of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange's um, you know, back office as, in my former life as a contractor. I haven't architected those particular systems but I've yeah. um, been part of the team. And what I've always noticed is that the database application, the database server, is never really that impressed with these applications. Even if you have, like, 12 million concurrent mm-hmm. users, yeah. IIS and ASP <laughs> might choke. Right. But the SQL servers never seemed to go above 20%. Zagat.com never went above 20% CPU utilization.
1: What kind of so, hardware was it running on?
3: Um, back, I mean, this was a number of years ago, so I don't This is about five years ago. Jeez, but it was and basically, and um, three, you know, uh, goodness, what was it again? Something like a... Um, the server must have had about a gig or two of RAM and four four processors, stuff like that. Um, it wasn't, you know, it was a very powerful, probably about twenty thousand dollar machine, but it wasn't really anything. Um, really, wasn't anything spectacular in that respect. Yeah.
1: All right. So on to RAID.
3: Well, I've always found that um, there's. Obviously, you want RAID one. Um, basically, RAID zero is not recommended. Really, SQL Server at all, right? Without any kind of other available plan, hmm. I, I like to use RAID one and RAID five. I'm a big fan of putting my um, separating my my indexes into a separate file. You know, SQL Server allows you to have files for your um, SQL Server allow you to have files for your you know your MDF and your LDF, but you can break up your MDF, and you can have one file for your indices, one file for your transaction log, and one file for your database tables. And you can even further break out your database tables. And I've always been a big fan of having three separate files, one for the transaction log, putting it on a different disk, one for your indices, putting that sometimes on a different disk, and one for your data tables. And I found that RAID 1 is great for transaction logs, right? It provides the mirroring for redundancy. Right. right, it's you know optimal for sequential writes. There's no striping going on, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. a transaction lock, Think of how a transaction works. Sure. Transaction lock works. Sequential writes, right? right? Yep. So it's really good. So what I like to do RAID five. It gives you parity, but it also gives you striping, right. right? And that's really good for fault tolerance without the expense of the duplicate drives used for the mirroring. So you're basically placing some data on all the disks. And, um, you know, it's great for read operations, right, because yeah. it uses fewer disks than RAID 1, right? right? But it's not optimal for a transaction log, which basically, you know, does mostly sequential writes. So in essence is, you know, RAID 1 is great for that transaction log and RAID 5 is great for your indexes and your, um, you know, your database. You know, and if your
1: database isn't changing that often is what you're saying. And you're even not, if it doing, does. not doing a lot of writes, but you're not continuously writing to it, but you are exactly. continuously
3: writing. So exactly. Your reading. transaction log is continuously writing and sometimes writing in big chunks, you know, so if you're updating a lot of data. So more than likely, your database is going to be reading more than writing. Even if it's a 60-40 scenario, you're better off using RAID 5. Hmm. I definitely have come across that.
1: That's cool, man. I never even thought of doing that, separating because them they, out like that.
3: Right, because think about how it all works. Sure. And, um, everyone always knows, let's put the transaction log on another disk for fault tolerance. But I'm like, well, why would you bother putting your transaction log on a RAID 5? That no, right? doesn't make right. any it's sense. And everything else and complexity. Yeah. You, know, you basically want to put that on a RAID 1 because all it's doing is sequential you know, read-write access, which is with, you know, what RAID 1 is, strives for. You know, the striping is what's really cool for you know, RAID 5, but that's great for you know, reading the access in a non-sequential fashion.
1: Have you ever had to serve up large files, like say fifty megabyte MP3 files? You know that may have oh I don't know audio talk show content on it or something like that. Have you ever had to serve up a lot of large data files on a on a website that uh, ran into scaling problems?
3: I've never done that. Uh, I think my experience is with that as something like you know Napster or LimeWire, but um. <laughs> I have never had to deal with um exactly what you're kind of mentioning. I've I basically had the um had to deal with large amounts of data in databases and maybe write out things to the disk, but they've always been like maybe 5 or 10 megs, that type of stuff and Inter- we've been lucky as we can dynamically create it and then um let people download it and then, you know, get rid of it.
1: Cuz interestingly, we've had uh, we had a problem we uh we got a new server to host all of the files and we have a RAID 5 uh, situation, which is really nice for, uh, for this because we only update it once a week or so. Right. And, and for uh, reading. yeah, That's for reading. Question. Exactly. And, and, and we have this issue or we had this issue. We think it's, it's done now, but basically people were getting, um, downloading, oh, I don't know, maybe half a show, 25% of a show, and then it would just cut off. Really? And it wouldn't actually say, you know, tell them, you know, uh, you know that the transfer was abnormally aborted or something like that it would it would if you look at if i looked in the logs it would say you know 200 really yeah and uh i found out through uh you know a process of working with microsoft that there's a little setting you can set in the registry and i think there's a command line switch for it where you send them set the minimum uh bytes per second value of iis and it's by default turned up a little bit, so if the bytes per second, if the you know if essentially some uh, a transfer is going too slow, it'll get cut off you know to sort of prevent sort of you know the the leaching kind of denial of service exactly. attacks and so like we think too. yeah, and so that's what we think was happening, so what I did was I turned that to zero. And, uh, but since then we've had some, a bandwidth crunch and I'm not really sure if that's the cause of people's, you know, obviously now they're getting slow connections, but, uh, so as soon as the, as soon as our bandwidth, uh, little crunch here is over in a couple of days, we think we're going to, uh, we want to ask people to, to, to note if that happens to let us know immediately. We think that solved the problem though, but it, you know, it's, there's just an, and this, these kinds of issues just never end, you know, they really don't and...
3: You know, I remember um, I started life, my interest into technology kind of was building Excel macros and Lotus macros on Wall Street like, you know, 10 or 12 years ago and then access databases. And it was simple. We wrote a little Lotus script behind a one, two, three spreadsheet and sent it off to the business guy. And, you know, it was one file, you know, and you had to worry about some syntax and maybe a file mapping. But other than that, you were golden. Now you have like these, you know, what version of the framework and where and why and how. It's, it's There's always something. Yep. It makes it interesting, though.
1: Yep. And you're not a big fan of putting blobs in databases, are you?
3: I'm not a huge fan, but I'm not, like, morally opposed to it either. I say, if you have a reason to do it, go for it. I have, in the past, for, like, websites that store it, I find that a little superfluous, you know, just basically store the reference to it in your database sure. or have your Let's... application have a reference to it. But
1: um... Doesn't it slow down, like, all the queries, basically, because now there's this big chunk in the, in the you know, in the disk there. In every record, we got to skip over.
3: Well, SQL Server is pretty good with the data pages. As for reading, you're absolutely correct. I mean, but we're talking like microseconds. I mean, depending on the speed of your disk, if you have really fast hard drives on a nice RAID 5 array, um, it will go right over that pretty quickly. Remember, it's not stored actually as, it's not stored as part of the record. It's, part, it's stored different than the data page itself. So if you're not retrieving mm. that value, it's never performing the link to that you know, blob object. Right. Only when you're actually including it in your select statements. That's why select star from table that has big blob in it is bad if you're not using the big blob object. Yeah. And select star from a table is always bad, especially with ADO.net, because ADO.net is going to go and try to retrieve and resolve the properties, Um, you know, do like open schema, so to speak, you know, when it comes when you're doing a select statement. So you always want to kind of limit the number of fields you're going to pull back.
1: Well, it's it's about uh, about time to wrap up. Roy. do you have any other questions you want to ask Stephen? I know I've been sort of dominating here.
2: No, no, it's fine. I mean, I was just thinking about everything you guys were saying. I was kind of off in La La Land and thinking about how I would solve these problems myself. And I figure, like, when, when it comes right down to it, when you're talking about RAID and you're talking about clustering and this and that, um, in my experience, if you just add more spot watches, then everything goes faster. <laughs> so <laughs> I like to I like to have clusters of spot watches. That's how com is stored, actually. Redundant spot watch uh, centers <laughs> all across the u.s. that i like to keep secret you know don't forget the hamster wheels i
3: like the hamster wheels personally the, the wheels only problem work.
2: is sometimes the battery goes on and one of the watches you know you lose a <laughs> node and stuff like that or you get the weather or something like that and that kind of interrupts <laughs> things a little bit but it's a pretty reliable system but that's all i was as long as you don't
3: about. water cool your pcs
1: <laughs> like richard campbell <laughs>
3: yeah. exactly
1: I actually had thought of if I ever build a house, putting in copper pipe in the wall just for water cooling PCs and watering plants. I think that would be a really cool idea. But anyway, a purpose? Yeah, sure. And of course, if you, turn you know,
3: investment will be faster.
1: Fresh water wherever you're standing in the house. Just get to a wall and you know, put a little. The problem
3: ice- is, up in Connecticut, your pipes would freeze easier. Yeah, that's true. Because you know, the best conductor is you know going to be copper.
1: Got to have uh, I don't know PVC or something. Yeah. Exactly. Well, anyway, Stephen, um, you got any events coming up you want to plug or or anything else you want to call it, say, hi, mom, or anything else? Uh...
3: Well, I've got a couple of events. As you know, I speak around the world a lot. I'll be speaking at um, in Algeria at the North Africa Developers Conference in April, and then in Istanbul, and then a conference in the Netherlands, and then TechEd. But before I do all of that, I'm going to be running a marathon, uh, actually down in Antarctica.
1: All right, so for our listeners in Antarctica, make sure you go down to the marathon <laughs> and watch Stephen run.
3: <laughs> people have been joking that i could be the regional director for antarctica i can have a whole continent to myself <laughs>
1: <laughs> you could be the president of antarctica for that matter
3: uh, there's a lot more there's a lot more smarter people in antarctica than me that's for sure lots of scientists down there you know
1: and the guy who
2: had to land there in that little uh, rv8 or whatever it was that he was flying that ran out of gas
3: <laughs> oh no, I'm taking a I'm taking a boat and then I take a dinghy onto shore and run the marathon and kinda of take the dinghy back to the boat.
1: You are kinda of dinghy for doing that in Antarctica actually. That's that's pretty crazy.
3: Well, my goal is to do something extreme and athletic on all seven continents, and I've, this will, of course, be the last one, the toughest one, and I'll probably never go back. So many people go to Antarctica in their later advanced age when they're retired and sit on a boat and look at penguins. I figured, well, I can kind of run up and run around and do a marathon, and it's a good story on .NET Rocks, and there's a low in a party, I can kind of bring it up, I guess.
1: One other thing I want to bring back from uh, the shows the way we used to do them is I used to ask the guests, you know, what what are some of their favorite tools or utilities or websites or, or uh, you know, things that they've downloaded recently that... Uh, hey,
2: I don't mean to interrupt, Carl, but Chris Else is calling. You want me to take it? Yeah, sure. Hey, Chris. Hey, so um, uh, I'm on .NET Rocks right now, and so are you. So what's going on?
3: Can't hear...
2: Okay, so Carl says that he appreciates, I mean, Chris says he appreciates um, me letting him know that he's also on Rocks. Did you want to say hi to Stephen Forte? Are are, are you still there, Chris? You know what, Chris? Maybe I should call you back. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be about five minutes. Is that okay, Chris? Okay, bye, sweetie. I love you. I'll call you then. Okay, bye.
1: (laughs) Bye, sweetie. I love Sorry you.
2: Sorry about bye. that. Um, he just – uh, he never stops calling. He's always asking for coding advice. And, uh... <laughs> well,
1: anyway, uh, I often ask my guests, uh, you know, if there are any tools or, or really cool things that you've downloaded recently that, uh, that you want to um, talk about, anything really spectacular.
3: Out there. Well there's a there's actually something it's not I won't call it spectacular, but it's really useful and you may have even spoke about it before, but you know, you're talking behind the scenes, you know, you you do some MSN chats and um I basically have friends that are in my Microsoft universe that are all on MSN chat. And, um, you know, so I have an MSN account and then I have, you know, like my dad who's on AOL chat and then my girlfriend, she's on Yahoo chat. So I used to have like all these chat clients pop up. So now I use a tool from a company called Trillian. Um, just called Trillion, and it basically gives you one user interface for all the chats, and it's great because the chat window pops up. I don't even know what—I don't know if you're at IMSN or, or Yahoo. As long as I have an account on each one, I have a skin for it, and it's one one client with you know as many windows as I want, and it's really good. So it's you know you can get it for shareware. There's probably a free version of it as well, and I think you pay twenty or thirty bucks, and it works just fine.
1: Doesn't have the bells and whistles though, right? Like video Doesn't and.
3: Yeah. Doesn't have the bells and whistles, and I've always thought that those. I think software gets bloated. You know, uh, besides maybe the most bloated. I mean, the award for the most bloated piece of Word. software is obviously Microsoft Word.
1: Microsoft Word, especially
3: yeah. for features not used. And I don't know. Clemens Vasters made me go on to the latest MSN the other day, and he he was able to kind of click some buttons, and my chat window started to shake. I'm like, <laughs> wow, that's the most useless thing of all time. So I kind of actually think, you know, I think chat is a very productive tool. I mean, I manage, you know, chat with my contractors in India. Um, And I have one developer in New York who works at home, not at the office. And we're in chat all day, and it's great. And um, other than that, though, I get bombarded with folks, you know, who I guess are in either other time zones or something else, and they don't – you know, they don't realize that I'm at work and maybe can't chat as often as they can. So I have all these windows open, and I find chat can be sometimes very um, low productivity. Mm-hmm. However, if you start shaking the window around and you can send, like, animated kisses and hugs and weird stuff, it's even less productive. So I think that using Trillion kind of justifies using chat.
0: You obviously to, you need to have oh, tabbed oh. chat support, you know, in your <laughs> chat. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> I mean, if, you've got, if you're talking to more than three people, it's just a necessity.
3: <laughs> oh, I, I hear you.
0: But, I mean, I guess Microsoft just, you know, isn't into the whole tabs thing, you know, like everybody else discovered five years ago. <clears throat> anyway.
3: Oh, that's an under- interesting thing that I've recently downloaded would be, um, my, uh, I used a Firefox browser for that exact feature for the for the tabs. Yeah. And, um, it's very cool. I have one browser open, and I have, like, 22 tabs. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Especially, like, just today, I was with my business 82. partner, and we were comparing our staging server to our... um. We have a forward staging server and then we have a, um, a QA server and we're comparing data on both of them and then we're comparing it to production. So we had the same kind of web page open because there's three different databases or three different web servers, you know, so we had the same, we had the same page open on all three and just flip through the tabs as opposed to going down and going back up. So pretty cool stuff.
1: Cool. All right, man. Well, it's been a, it's been a great show and, uh, on behalf of myself and Rory and Jeff in the sound room, and all the listeners all around the world in every country that we, we touch, I want to thank you for coming on Don and Rocks Thank you. Always Thanks. fun to talk to you. we're still going to do that show in New York at Tony's Pizza, right?
3: can't wait. Be all great.
1: Right. All right, guys, take it easy. Have a good, good
4: night. Good night. tonight.